This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Welcome back to the program. Rami Amuthan, Kelly McDonald. We are the hosts of the show. Thank you for being with us. And I want to remind you to check out the Kelly and Company podcast. You simply can subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. You can listen to the show in segment form or the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience. Jeff Ryman today providing our audio vanity card at the end of the full show podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcast platform to Kelly and Company. As I mentioned, my co-host, Rami Amuthan, Kelly McDonald here. Well, we're going to get into a lot of interesting conversation shortly here. Let's bring on our registered nurse, Leslie DePoe. I'm Leslie DePoe, registered nurse. Until I got into healthcare, I didn't realize how many people around me had questions about taking care of their own health. So I'm really happy to share some of those answers with you. Join me for the monthly health check-in and we'll talk about everyday questions about everyday health. Leslie, we're going to fire off as many questions as we can in this short amount of time with you. Uh, but really what we're trying to get into is the breadth of the public health crisis that we're in the midst of here in Ontario. Uh, there are other places as well, but we're going to narrow it down and talk about the scope in Ontario. So let's start with the background. So we know that emergency rooms are closing. There's uh, stuff all over the news for people to check out across the province. Does this crisis go beyond the emergency rooms, you know, shortage of family doctors, other things like that, and want to get your perspective on where this leaves patients. For sure. So, I mean, as you say, a lot to cram in here in a short amount of time. So we're going to do a quick Mm -hmm. history lesson first, um, and we're going to talk about the Canadian healthcare system and specifically the Canadian Healthcare Act. So most people, when they talk about Canada's free healthcare, it's as though it's a federal entity, which technically, yes, but healthcare is actually controlled by the provinces. So the Canadian Healthcare Act is a federal legislation for publicly funded healthcare insurance, but it's to ensure that every eligible resident has reasonable access to insured health services and that without direct charges. And it's it's really based on five principles, public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. But when it comes to actually fulfilling the CHA, that is up to the province. So the first big misnomer is this universality. What's covered in one province, for example, you know, speech language pathologists, access to certain drugs is not covered by the next province. Okay, it varies really very greatly across the province as you go. So the first thing to understand is that you thought it was universal, it actually isn't. So when we look at what's happening in our province, this closing of emergency rooms, this lack of beds, which I'm going to get to because it's not a lack of furniture, just a spoiler alert. um, You know, there's a very valid and very well-supported group of individuals, professional organizations and politicians that are going to tell you that what you're seeing right now is happening by design, that our government is sort of allowing this crumbling system to to continue to fail in order that privatization be presented as the next best alternative. So first of all, why are we overrun in hospitals? Why are we overrun in emergency rooms? So the first one is, you know, we can take a look at what's happening. Believe it or not, we got all all the way back to long-term care. You know, we people have been raising alarm bells about this for decades. As boomers age, we knew we were going to need right. more space. Mm-hmm. That did not happen. People are living longer. So turnovers in long-term care, not to be crass, but that's not what it was. 
Next, we have a lot of people that don't actually want to leave their home or can't afford long-term care. Yes, mm. some are government-funded, but the waiting list for those are very long, and not a lot of people want that. So we needed better infrastructure for home care as well. That hasn't been um, implemented effect- effectively. So what's happening is you're seeing a lot of people coming into hospitals, suffering a life-altering injury or an illness, but now they can't go home. So where are they supposed to go? We don't have room in long-term care. We don't have room in assisted living. Home care isn't going to suffice. So they end up staying in hospital until we have a place for them and sadly have a pretty poor quality of life in, in that, in that time as well. Then if you look at our community supports and that, that also includes family doctors, because you asked about that piece as well, where do people go when they're sick? Unfortunately, they show up and emerge. Okay. So now you have a department that was never built to address this kind of influx, trying Mm -hmm. to manage people as we try and filter them through the system. Yes, we, we see them, we treat them, we assess them, we try to release them, but where are we releasing them to? And how long does it take for those supports to kick in? And I'm going to tell you where you see this all the time is in mental health. Individuals arrive in crisis. They're dealt with in crisis. We arrange for community supports that either aren't enough or we can't accommodate them and they land back and emerge. So we're overrun. We don't actually have, yes, the space. But then really what we're talking about here is when we say we don't have beds, we're talking about we don't have nurses. And there's a couple different reasons for that. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but the other piece I want to talk uh, talk on or just um, really touch on, I guess, is the fact that the acuity level has gone up. So and by that, I mean how sick are people? Um, and and we used to see not a greater level of acuity. It was a lesser level of acuity, acuity. But now people are pushing the threshold of when they can stay at home. And by the time they arrive in, they're quite sick. They require more care, more specialized care. And nursing is a self-regulated profession, you know. So that's something to keep in mind. While a lot of organizations are rep by union, you know, if a case were to go to court because that nurse was left to, you know, defend their practice because they had too many patients as an assignment, for example, mm. you can't you can't take care of three critically ill patients in ICU. It's it's responsible who's going to who's going to cover me when i end up in in court and that's that is a huge piece of what's driving this rns and and rpns and psws and support staff in hospitals are are not just overworked they're under supported the infrastructure isn't in, in in place to support and promote safe and quality care which is what we've all been educated and trained trained to do so mm-hmm. there's a lack of respect there's unsafe working condition. There are practice issues, patient issues, a lack of training. There's physical abuse that happens in hospitals all the time with no legal or criminal fallout. Um, and then you add the pandemic on top of this, right? Was was additional stress. You're having, you know, we had all this gratitude up front. Then that quickly turned into protests, people outstanding outside of cancer clinics and children's hospitals yelling at people, you know. And so when you then factor in the part where our wages have been capped, which is what happened with Bill 124, you know, you're definitely definitely seeing this increased stress. And, um, you know, <laughs> I know you want another, another question here, so I'm not going to keep talking, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but you know, this is, this is another huge part of it too, is like, yes, we're doing, we're, we are now trying this new incentive to attract overseas nurses, but I just want to highlight the fact that there's some huge, very obvious and not spoken about racial disparities that are underpinning that. What you're trying to do is attract people from countries where quality of living is low, wages are low. You get them to come here. You say, but look at how much we'll pay you. Okay, you get some little bonus incentive to come until they get here and realize you can't live off the same amount of money. We're offering this short-term incentive payout structure, but it's a short-sighted solution. So then what do we do if you don't have enough nurses that are staff nurses by your hospital? You hire agency nurses. There are independent private companies right now that are doing this. And hospitals are paying those agency nurses two to three times what a staff nurse makes. 
So for sure, nurses are going to jump ship from the hospital, go take the money when they can from agency. But so this misnomer that our government has this surplus of money and we just can't find nurses. Well, you're spending the money. You're just spending it really irresponsibly by paying people more than what was needed. If you gave people a fair wage, I think you'd see a huge uptick in in sort of what people were willing to do and 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 um, and how they're willing to work. So, wow. And, and again, it's just incredible when you see that misuse of the money, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's That's very amazing. frustrating. It's very yeah. frustrating, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And when you see that misuse of the money, it, it's just crazy. Uh, well, then with some people leaving the, the profession entirely, in your opinion, what is causing, what is the cause? Like you said, you went over a lot there. And what's it doing to the people left behind? Well, I mean, it's it's exasperating an already very stressed out system. So there's a couple things that are happening. You are you're really you're asking for the most part, and I'm obviously quite, trying not to be, but I'm a little biased on all of this given what I do for a living. But you're asking right. people to practice in unsafe conditions, and then you're asking patients to accept subpar care, none of which is appropriate. None of which is appropriate. I mean, it's not just that the nurses shouldn't have to accept that, but as a as a tax paying individual, you should not have to say yes to this. Um, but you do. You don't have a choice. Right. So, um, you know, what's happening is we're seeing a backlog. We're seeing people who go to emerge um, when they either when they shouldn't or they leave when they shouldn't. That's a huge thing that we're seeing. Sadly, we're seeing, you know, extensive wait times. We're seeing people dying or being sick that shouldn't be. Um, And the truth is we've already have a two tier system here. If you have money. You can pay for whatever you would like to pay for. If you don't want to wait for an MRI, you can drive to Buffalo and pay for one and you'll get it done tomorrow. So this whole idea that, you know, well, you know, if we just had to bring in this other system, it would be fine. Look at how much faster it would go. It is rooted in in a popular like that is rooted in individuals who will always have access because they'll always have money. Those that are marginalized already are only going to be further marginalized because they're not going to be able to be able to pay out of pocket. So that means subpar care and or longer wait times, misdiagnosis or worse, a lack of treatment. I mean, I've been seeing a number of articles lately, which is so sad of individuals that are that are choosing MAID, which is medical assistance in dying, that are choosing medical assistance in dying because they cannot afford to live with the chronic illness that they have. They don't have the community supports for it. They can't afford to have a disability pension that's enough to to pay them a decent enough wage to keep a roof over their heads and to keep those supports in place. And so sadly enough, the alternative, which is to no longer be here, becomes a viable option for these individuals. And I think I've, I've read at least three of those articles locally, sort of GTA, within the past week. And it's not only heartbreaking, but it is, in my opinion, completely unacceptable in this country. There's absolutely no reason that that should be your only alternative. Well, because health care, free health care, maybe affordable health care is one of the biggest blessings, if it works, uh, for being here at all. Right. So if you're saying Mm -hmm. we can't even deal with the way that things are going these days and have to turn to maid, uh, that's that's just um, absolutely I I can't even put words to it. That's unbelievable. And it gets scary when we're throwing money in the wrong places, like Leslie said over there, paying triple and and, putting money back in the equation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's just uh, it. It's not like the surplus isn't there, but where is it being directed? And no, I'm not a politician. And no, I don't sit there and balance the books. All I know is, mm-hmm. you know, we all see, as as all consumers of news do, we see a $2. billion surplus or whatever the case may be. And then you have to ask the question, then where is it 
Where is it going? Going. Yeah. And why isn't it going to a place where when the organizations that actually run these professions are telling you where we need them, mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why do you have, you know, why are you not taking the advice of the individuals that actually do it for a living? Politicians are so far removed from this to be able to tell me where, where your money is need to be spent in this complete misnomer about, hey, come and look at all the beds we have. We do not have a lack of furniture in this province. We have a lack of trained medical staff. Exactly. So that's that's a huge discern, like something to discern um, as well. Let's talk about that, actually. So with the pandemic, aside from the acute burden on hospitals and frontline mm-hmm. healthcare workers, limited the training. Um, I'm I'm sure that this is creating a huge problem for medical students. Is there a backlog? Like what's going on there? How do we know uh, mm-hmm. how many nurses and other frontline staff will be available? Well, it's a great question. And I mean, I know that they're trying to kind of come up with ways to fast track things. We've we've adjusted education, we've adjusted ways to move people through the system. And while there's there is a degree of sense in that, you have to remember that, you know, as we chatted about at the beginning, as the level of acuity goes up with these individuals, shortcutting education is not the answer. The responsibility that befalls a frontline worker. If, so for example, if you work bedside in ICU or CCU, so these are critical care units, that's you don't just come out of nursing school and go there. You need additional education to be there. That's a whole other course on top of that. Then that involves being precepted and being coached through the piece. So I mean you know, as you say, where does that leave us? What are we going to do? Where are all of these people? You can only really move them so quickly through the process. So much of what you learn in nursing is done at the bedside. You can read a million textbooks, but you know, I'd say it gets you about 75% of the way there. Most nurses would tell you it gets you about 50% of the way there. So much of what you learn happens on site and it happens because somebody more senior with more experience is still on your unit. So when you start seeing 25, 30, 35 your veteran nurses walking off a unit, it's the blind leading the blind. Who else is left? You don't want the nurse who's been there for one year to be your senior nurse who's training people. They haven't seen enough. And it's not their fault. It doesn't make them a bad nurse. They weren't a bad student. But there's only so much you can, you have to experience things in order to, to develop clinical and critical judgment. And that's at the, at the heart of what nurses do, especially in an acute care setting, which is what hospitals are. That's an acute setting. In order to have that lens and have those skills needed to actually do the job to the best of your ability, you have got to have the experience. And so when you lose those veteran nurses, away with them goes the experience. And that is terrifying. Yeah, for sure. Leslie, how can listeners support healthcare workers? But also, Leslie, what happens next if nothing changes? I mean, if nothing changes, we'll end up introducing a privatized system. Like I said, it already exists. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that'll get pushed. People will die. Marginalized people will only be further marginalized. People who can't afford to live are going to choose alternatives. Um, so how can you support healthcare workers? Vote. <laughs> Please vote. Um, you know, vote for a government that that has your healthcare system at heart. Um, vote for a government that has a good plan for how to use the surplus of dollars. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you to vote as an informed individual and hopefully with healthcare in the front of your mind um, when you do because it affects all of us and it's going to affect your long-term health for sure. Yeah. Um, if you are going to use, the, um, use our healthcare system, be patient. Say thank you. It goes a really long way. 
take care of yourself. You know, so much of what we do here when we get to chat on the show is talking about, you know, developing your own resources and your own plans for a health and safety safety lifestyle. Please do that Um, and use your resources. Understand what can be dealt with at your GP or an urgent care center versus an emergency department. A hundred percent. If you need an emergency room, that is what it's there for. You do not hesitate for a moment. But if you can triage yourself, if you can speak to your GP first, if you can determine where you need to be and where you can receive the right care, it'll certainly help to alleviate some of that burden. Leslie, this has been so much information. I encourage everyone who's missed any part of this to go back to the podcast and listen carefully. Thank you for taking part in this discussion with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thank you. Leslie DePoe is our registered nurse who joins us on the second Wednesday of the month, uh, giving us insight on all kinds of things, including the Ontario healthcare crisis. And I really, Fedora's off to Leslie because as much as she's giving us information, as factual as she can be, you know, you've got someone there very affected seeing it around Mm. her all the time and uh, trying to be as impartial and just stick to the facts as she can. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. We'll flip through some quirky stories from around the globe with Grant Hardy in a moment. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.